0: visit the AllInGospel.com website. So number 16, uh, and let's say a quick word of prayer before we get going. Dear Lord, we just pray that you bless us and we just thank you for the privilege to open up your word and study it. May you touch our hearts. May you change us, Lord, so that we can be more like you. Uh, May you convict us where we need convicting and encourage and fill us where we need help. Uh, Lord, bless us and teach us in Jesus' name, amen. Number 16, um, if if you have a paper Bible and you look at a glance or if you have a digital one and scroll, you'll notice this is a fairly long chapter, but man, it's a good one. Uh, We have uh, in chapters one through nine of numbers, they were preparing to move with God and to go into the wilderness and do things. And they did great things in chapters 1 through 9. They were getting ready, and they were preparing to move with God. Then in chapter 10, they pick up, and they start moving, and they're living life following God. When the cloud moves, they move. When it stops, they stop. Everything's great. And then in chapter 11 through 14, we get this assortment of complaining, and that's what happens. When God's people move together, they complain together. And that's just what starts to happen. And it's human nature. It's who we are, right? So we get to chapter 15. After this great rebellion in chapter 14, Miriam and Aaron challenge Moses, and God sorts it out for them. And then you have this beautiful chapter 15 where God basically says, I just wanted you to live life with me. And, and, and he reminds them what he expected of them, what his words said to do. And then he ends the chapter with just wear tassels. And he adds this little bit of these reminders that we have through our life that we do. Where are the tassels? Everything in this book doesn't make a ton of sense, but God makes clarity in all of it. So they're lost in the wilderness. And in Numbers 16, we don't know where, when they're lost in the wilderness. There's this period of about 38 years that we cover in very short amount of time in the book of Numbers. And somewhere in that time, you have what happens in chapter 16. But it doesn't tell us one. It just says the word now. Now this happens. So that's something that happens right after God gives these reminders. They've been wa- they've been trying to follow the Lord together, and then you get this like group of people. This is a little different than the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron, which are just two other leaders challenging the leader. This is like a collection of people that have gathered together to challenge Moses. Um, and we'll see how that goes. But. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, and the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Ibhirim, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses, and Aaron said to them, You take too much upon yourselves. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? One question is, after the Lord has dealt with these complainers in the other chapters, right, they were killed, where do these people come from? Like, there's still complainers left in the congregation. And from Moses' perspective, it's like they just keep emerging. It's like weeds in the garden, Um, And that's kind of where it is because all humans, including Moses and Aaron, are in a state of sin. And they always are in a state of sin. And we have to constantly be on guard against that or you end up in these kinds of situations. So it's a never-ending situation for the people of God to have to deal with their own hearts when it comes to that complaining spirit. Right? And it keeps coming. So they took men in verse 1 at the very end. They took men. the, The word men is not in the Hebrew. So it actually is just the sons of Reuben took without, and that's kind of an odd thing, usually you don't have that kind of a verb without an attaching noun, and here we have this kind of big open-ended took, they just took, and that's part of what the sin is here, and I actually think the Hebrew kind of conveys something that our English versions lose when we added the word men there. Because it's not like they just gathered men together and took men. It's just that they took. They took this upon themselves to do it. They took men to come do it with them. And they took this assumption that it was their job to challenge Moses. They took in general. So Coran, Dathan, and Ibiram are kind of the top three here. Uh, and An is a fourth one that's added, which we gets covered later. They are Levites and Reubenites. And that's significant because we know from earlier chapters that the Levites and the, and the, or the Kohathites and the Reubenites stayed on the south side of the camp together. So these people gathered and hung out together. And that south side of the camp was a position of prestige. The Kohathites were the ones that carried the implements. And I suppose I shouldn't say remember when this happened because you weren't here for that. But that was like one of the, other than the sons of Aaron, the Kohathites <clears throat> were kind of the most prestigious part of the Levite groups because they got to carry the ark and the the thing, the lampstand, but that's not good enough for them. And they wanted more, right? Um, the the Corrin, uh the name that's given there in verse one, uh, is actually a cousin of Moses. And you see that um, from Numbers 26. They have different dads, but they're cousins. And Koran most people believe, would have been older than... Uh, the older cousin. So it's one of those things where there might be some age mixed in here too, where the older person is coming to the younger person, and why do you think you're in charge? And, it, and the world sometimes says that age matters. God hasn't picked age as we've seen through the Bible. He picks based on the heart. And then the last piece here, and you should know this, Korah in the Hebrew means baldness. So just so you know, those who want to pick on bald people, this is the guy that gives bald people a bad name. Um, because his name means baldness. There's other spots that say good things about baldness, but this isn't one of them. Verse two, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, represented as the congregation and men of renown. So we're back to rebellion, just like with Miriam two chapters ago. Again, so one thought is when you dig into this chapter, you go, aren't we tired of rebellion yet? And aren't we tired of this thing where people don't have a spirit of unity around Christ or around the kingdom? and that you have this kind of division happening all the time. It gets old, um, but still it's there. So in verse 2, it says some. Uh, so that means it's some of the children of Israel. It's not all. Remember, with, with in earlier chapters, it was all of the congregation of Israel was complaining about the manna. So we've actually made progress here, even though it feels like we're going in the wrong direction. Going from all of the congregation complaining to some of the congregation, that's actually huge prog- progress for the nation of Israel. They're moving away from their Egyptian status considerably. Um, in, they're in a group, and the group is actually numbered here as 250 people. Percentage wise, we are way, way down from where we were before. This is a small faction of people. And if there's, even if you consider like a bunch of them may have already died um, in the other, the plagues with the birds and the quails and stuff like that, you still probably have a million plus people in the Israeli camp right now even with deaths and wh- whatever number that amounts to. So this is really pretty massive project, but isn't it amazing how a very small group of people can make a big, big noise and cause so much trouble in an organization. So we see that. And also uh, when we, we have them facing down Aaron and Moses and getting in their face, Um, And it says they rose up before them in the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and and said, you take too much on yourselves. It's basically, if you think about it, 250 plus four, 254 people against two. takes a lot of courage to gang up on somebody like that. Yet, if you add God to the two, then the odds are really in the favor of Moses and Aaron in this situation. The question here is why are they... Complaining, And the reason there is given. Koran um, was not put in charge of his tribe. Uh, we see that in, way back in Exodus 6. And in Numbers thirty three verse 30, Pan was put in charge of the Kohathites. Um, and he would have also been a younger cousin. So basically, Korah has gotten skipped over twice. So in the why question, it could be that they're just, that he, this is just a guy that's gotten prideful and he thinks he deserves leadership because of his age. Reuben was the older tribe, but Reuben got displaced by the Levites. So now the Reubenites have something in common with the Kohathites. They've both been passed over by a younger tribe or a younger sibling, and they could be feeling like that's not good. It says they rose up before him, and we've seen that before too in the Hebrew. That means penem, which is in his face. They literally got in his face, and gotten his grill, which says the aggression here is not coming from Moses, it's clearly coming from these people. The leaders, the representatives, the men of the renown, notice how it repeats almost three times. And it's really making the point in that cluster of three, because they're all synonyms, that these were the bigwigs, these were the men of renown. And and that idea that these were the respected authorities, the experts, and they emphasize that, that this is part of the story. So that's the reason that I think the Bible presents in that place is that these are people that were respected by humans, but they weren't chosen by God. And that's a horrible place to be because you feel like you deserve to be in a place of renown, but you're not in God's kingdom. And Jesus pointed this out when he said, the first will be last, the last will be first. The way God orders and ranks people is not the same as the way humans wanna do it. So for the humans that would normally be ranked high, that can be offensive to them. So in that, verse 3, they gather together against Moses and Aaron and they say to him, you take too much upon yourself. That's the first lie because we've read through this history and again, Moses has kind of given us at each point. Has Moses taken this on himself or has he accepted this and God's put it on him? So they're not understanding the spiritual reality of how God has used Moses that we've seen as readers. And that's a really interesting situation because when you don't understand that, it's easy to misunderstand Moses' motivations. They say, for all the congregation is holy. Notice that some of the congregation is speaking for everyone here. And if they were speaking for everyone, then we would have seen that all the congregation was doing it. So that's a second lie. They're exaggerating how many people support them. And we don't know that that many people support them. And then he says, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So they excuse Moses of being exclusionary as a leader, that he's overstepping his bounds, that he's too much of a boss man. And these kinds of folks want an audience to do it. So one way to get an audience is to tell everybody that they are as good as they are. What the irony of this situation is that these people, the people that say that there's no such thing as authority often want to be an authority. There's a huge kind of irony to that. Um, And the humble people that don't want authority often find themselves in God's kingdom in those positions where they're they're asked to do things that they didn't really ask for. So the real deal comes along and they're overlooked and they're kind of bitter about it. Poran gets his platform, he's gathered these people, uh, and and he's made himself an authority by establishing himself as a speaker of these people. He represents these people. So It's a smart lie to use. It's a great way to get followers. You tell everybody that everybody's in charge, everybody can do what they want to do, everybody's the boss of themselves, but I'll be the boss of that group of people. And it's a really clever way to do that, um, to say we can, everyone can do as we please. And in the kingdom, of course, you attach that to holiness. Everybody can do as they please for the sake of God, but that's not the way God has established it with Moses. So this is a thing. This is. Let me say this too. This kind of thing happening in the church or in the kingdom of God is a really difficult situation. And it's why we're reading it in Numbers 16, and we didn't read it back in Genesis. I honestly think there's a journey through Genesis and Exodus and Numbers preparing for the wilderness. And even this situation where they're all getting reminded in the last chapter of how to walk with God, it's people trying to walk with God that run into this situation. It's a really complex situation, and it happens amongst brothers and sisters in the faith that are trying to establish who gets the final say on how to do things. So they say that they're going to exalt themselves or lift themselves up over. Uh, It's a self-lifting that that Hebrew word implies there. So they claim that Moses was self-lifting himself or manipulating and aspiring to things. And that's because they have not seen God working in Moses' life like we have as readers. And that's something where they're watching Miriam get demoted and she has leprosy, so she's outside the camp, and they're seeing that Moses is making, from their perspective, Moses is making decisions. From our perspective and Moses' perspective, Moses is following the Lord's will. So it's it's something that does happen in the church, and it can happen, and it it can be entirely divisive in church communities, because people that are on the outside don't see how God's working on the inside, and they just judge from the outside without being part of it. Verse four says, so when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who he is, who who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near him. That one whom he chooses will cause, he will cause to come near it, come near to him. This is basically how to handle conflict. Moses has done this before. Conflict comes to the door and he just falls to the ground. When you lower yourself beneath someone else in the ancient world, You're humbling yourself underneath them. Mm -hmm. And Moses isn't scared to humble himself underneath Korah or fall on his face in front of Korah because his strength doesn't come from his positioning with other humans. His strength comes from the Lord. And he can be all the way on the ground, but God elevates him in a position that he wants to be there. But Moses is completely bowing. and, And to fall on his face before Korah is an extremely unique response to a challenge where someone's up in your face and in your grill. And it's one of those things where he's loving his enemies in a really powerful way, right? And last time he was silent with Miriam and and, and Aaron. Remember that two chapters ago? He didn't say a word the whole chapter until the very end. He didn't even know what to do in that situation. But he's been in this situation before. He knows God's going to choose things. And if he acts quickly, maybe God will spare these people. And Moses then this time, we see growth. He's acting differently than he acted before. Sorry if I forget to look up there very much um so he falls on his face nafal is the hebrew word to cast down to fully go down and it can even be used for the word for, to mean to die he dies on his face before people moses is completely humbling himself um, in this sense it's interesting to see throughout the bible that the leaders god picks are rarely men of renown that's really interesting And it teaches us if we want to be serving God, it should not be seeking renown in this world. That's not our goal. That's not what we do. So God's going to choose people, and he chooses people that he wants to. Now Moses is seeing that coming. Verse 6, do this. Take censors, Korah and all your company. To take sensors means to go fetch, carry, or acquire. I think this is kind of interesting. Maybe Moses is even getting more confident in how he responds. He's basically saying, go get your own sensors (laughs) Which is an interesting thing, because he's done all this organization with the tabernacle, and he's had all this stuff made, and all that stuff's really under Aaron's control right now. So when he says to Korah, go and get your own sensors, it's kind of like, you didn't make this. You weren't part of this. So why are you here telling us how to do this? But that's just my read on it. It could just be that he's saying, go get censors from the temple. Um, but basically, get your get your sensors. Go do it. Take some action. And in some ways, Moses is even in discipling them. Because so far, Korat really hasn't done anything other than carry implements. So he's saying, okay, you want to do some more stuff. Why don't you start with going to get censors and bringing them here and organizing people and actually being in a leadership role? verse seven, put fire in them and put incenses in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy one. So again, Moses is completely opening himself up to not being the leader of Israel because he even kind of prayed for that a couple chapters ago. Lord, let me die. So I don't have to see my own inability. Right. And he says, you take too much upon yourselves, sons of Levi. Moses fights back this time. He says basically the same, you take too much upon yourself, Moses. And he says, oh no, you're going to do the censor thing and you take too much upon yourself. Because he watched his own sister get leprosy. He knows that God's going to judge things and he knows without a doubt that God's picked him for what he's doing. So in this instance, he's like pushing back and he's warning people. And this is the power, I think, of a pure heart. And we are sinners and we all wrestle with sin. We do it our whole life. We were just talking about this before. This is the power of a pure heart. When you've been walking with the Lord and you have a clean conscience mm-hmm. before the Lord, you can boldly speak to people. And in this sense, I think in love, he's warning these people, you're, taking, you're going too far right now. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. So look at the difference between how Moses handles things in this chapter and how he handles things with Miriam and Aaron two chapters ago. And I just think the contrast is, is dramatic. God has totally changed Moses. And this time around, Moses has confidence in what he's doing and what he's saying. Then Moses said to Korah, he's not talking to all four of the leaders here. Do note that he's just talking to Korah. So Moses starts dealing with each people and he deals with each one differently as though God has told him what the sin is in that person's life. So listen to how this goes. With, more, with Korah, he's going to deal with gratefulness and ungratefulness or is more particularly. Hear now, you sons of Levi, Um, it almost sounds like he's going to swear at him, but then Levi shows up. It is a small thing to you that the God of Israel has... Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation, to serve them? And that he's brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you, and you're seeking the priesthood also? Like it's not good enough for you that you've got position in this kingdom and placement in this kingdom. You've gotten a role from God, but that's just not good enough. You need more. And remember, this is what was going on with Miriam too. She was essentially perhaps third in the country, but she wanted more. And there was this hunger in her, like a wolf that she just had to keep eating and consuming. Um, And this time Moses is just going right at it. He sees what's going on because of his experience before. And that made me kind of encouraged. I thought every time we go through something tough, God's prepping us to minister to people that are going to be going through something tough. And every time we go through something and survive it, we can have empathy and sympathy and confidence moving forward in like situations with other people. And that's an amazing gift to have. Forevermore, Alyssa, you'll have sympathy for people that have back or hip pain. Forevermore. And if you can get through this and that healing happens, and then you can know that feeling and that that pain that just dominates your movements. But Moses is like that here too. He's been through this kind of rebellion before and now he's handling it in a very different way. And he's appealing to Korah's heart. Is this not good enough for you? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. He speaks truth right at the situation. You're not coming against me. You're coming at the Lord. You need to understand who you're fighting. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? Why are you picking on Aaron? He's the nicest guy in the world. What is Aaron that you got a problem with him now all of a sudden? So Moses reminds them that their service was their promotion. They had been promoted in the Lord. That was what God wanted from them. Moses sees himself as a servant and can't even understand why somebody would want more than what they've been asked to do. Why do you want more responsibility is another way to read this, right? So he's not content with the ministry. Your role's not enough. In the flesh, it's just that insatiable hunger for more that people have. And the ungratefulness for what they have makes them want more all the time. This is the core of sin for so many people. Just that constant desire. The desire for money, the desire for power, the desire for position and reputation. Even in this case, the desire to be re-seen as holy by other people. You're still sinning. It's still that earthly desire. To reject God's gift and his role is, like he says, uh, um, it's against the Lord to do that. To not be content with what God's given you and your portion and your roles and your responsibilities and the people you put in your life to minister to, you're rejecting God. You're in, you're in opposition to God. And it's not done out of love. It's done out of a self-love or a self-righteousness. All work in the kingdom should be done out of love. You do it because you care about people. And that's why you do things. And if you can't do it from a place of love, don't do it. That's hypocritical. So if you're going to give something, if you're going to wash the dishes, if you're going to bring food, do it because you love the people you're bringing that to and the people you're serving. Do it because you want to fall on your face before them and say, I love you. You've added a lot to my life. Thank you for this. And you've blessed me. And that's the heart from which we do things in the kingdom. I love that with Moses before the test, he announces the truth at him so they know what they're being tested on. If he didn't do this, then they think it's a battle between them and Moses. But Moses reframes it. And this is a beautiful rhetorical technique. If you were in a debate, this is how you do it. He frames the debate. This is not about you and me. This is about you and God. And I'm not, I'm not important here, Right. And then Moses calls to the next two. And he says in verse 12, he sent to call Dathan and Ibrahim, I don't know how to say that, Abiram and the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not come up. So they're complaining against Moses, but they refuse to talk to him. Like, think about that for just a second. This is different than Korah, isn't it? We won't come up. Is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey just to kill us in the wilderness? and you keep acting like a prince over us, my goodness, they sound like middle schoolers. No offense to middle schoolers. You're not the boss of me is basically what they're saying. And this is kind of rebellion number two, and it happens all the time. Every pastor I know has at some point in the process of their ministry had to talk to people in their church about active sin. And one of the most common responses is, well, you're not the boss of me. Who are you to think you're the boss of me? And the pastor's like, you, I'm nobody, but you're sinning and you're doing something that's against the Lord. And it's my responsibility under God to bring that in front of you. And you can do what you want with it. It's between you and the Lord. But the, one of those responses is, well, you're not the boss of me. And what's really sad is those people often just leave the church and they find another pastor that won't call out their sin. And they just keep church shopping until they find a place where they won't be bothered in their sin. And how tragic that they don't have to hop too many times to find that kind of church. They're out there. So this is the second kind of thing then is this, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Verse 14, moreover, you've not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that's kind of true. They haven't got to the land of milk and honey, but they were right at the doorstep. Remember? They're right there. And it was their sin that kept them out. So they screwed up, and now they're blaming Moses because Moses didn't bring us there. It's like, well, actually, God was the one leading you. Remember, the cloud is moving you around the wilderness, and now you're blaming Moses for the leadership. Moses is like, I'm not the cloud. I don't have buttons. I'm not the Wizard of Oz. I don't get to do that. Do you know that reference, Wizard of Oz? Okay, good. Okay. (laughs) You have not brought us into the land of flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. We're not talking to you anymore. We're done talking to you. How much of that do we see in our country right now? Just, I I don't agree with you, so I'm not talking to you anymore. And you're going, okay, well, then I guess we're not even in... That's not love. That's not a healthy way to deal with people. That's not Christ-like. The refusal to talk is a tactic that removes accountability by making accusations without conversations. And it's a deadly tactic to use. It's also amazingly cowardly. It's the most chicken thing people can do. It's pathetic. And it's one of those things where you find people, and again, these are people that are kind of in the kingdom of God right now. These are the people of Israel but you find people in the church that want to accuse their pastor or leadership or the worship leader or the bassist on the worship team, and they want to take shots at those people, but they don't want to be accountable for doing anything in the church. They're not joining the worship team. They're not helping with the children's ministry. They're not doing anything. They're just critiquing what they have. It's cowardly, and it's pathetic. Deep down in this sense, to admit that they're not doing anything is to reveal a weakness in the kingdom. It's much easier to just not have that conversation and just complain behind people's backs. So it's argumentative, but they choose to blame Moses without actually dealing with Moses. Okay, So they accuse Moses of acting like a prince. Uh, this is clearly not, even though Moses was kind of a prince of Egypt in his youth, that isn't been how he's been in, as an adult at all. So again there Satan is working through these people to accuse Moses of something that he struggled with when he was a young man that he's been dealing with now for 40 years but Satan will use that sin against Moses his whole life and it just keeps coming back the accuser just wants to hit those sore spots for his entire life Moses doesn't bend to it though in verse 15 and then Moses was very angry great verse we've seen God get angry anger is not a sin Righteous anger is okay. What you do with anger is can be sinful or it can be a righteous godliness. But in this case, Moses is seeing this cowardliness, this refusal to come talk. These people that are still acting like complaining slaves in Egypt instead of people of God. And he sees this situation and he gets very angry because what he's dealing with is an ultimate disregard, not just for Moses, but for Moses' humanity not even enough respect to have a conversation. That gets him angry. And they're against God. This is a disrespect for the Lord God Almighty, and that gets Moses angry too. Moses knows the truth of this situation. And, and I'll point out one other thing here too. When there's no conversation, there's no hope for a resolution. So Moses, I think, gets a little frustrated because he can't even help these people because they can't even talk to him they'll never get to see Moses' love for them. Moses falls on his face before Korah and the other three men, but this group of people that are out there that refuse to talk to him, and these number two and three of these leaders that refuse to have more of a conversation, they're never going to really get to see Moses' true servanthood, true humility. They'll never see that his character is different than their accusations because they won't talk. Another thought, where did the 250 people go? They're around. They know they've come forward with these accusations, but they're utterly silent in this chapter. And I want to point that out here because they have an opportunity to speak up against the lies that are being said, and they don't challenge those lies. And God's going to later in the chapter hold them totally accountable for their silence. So we can say, well, I've never complained and I've never done this, but have we ever heard someone lying about another person and not said anything? Because if we do that, we're guilty of what they're saying. We own that responsibility, and that's a principle we're going to get to later in the chapter. But I want to point that out now because that's part of what I think gets Moses angry. Here's this whole group of people, including 250 people, that aren't dealing with these situations, and they're lying together. And for Moses, it's like, what are we going to do here? And Moses, I don't think, is scared of 250 people. He's, he watched Pharaoh's army get drowned just a few years ago. And he said to the Lord... Don't respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them. I just like that phrase. I haven't taken one donkey from you, nor have I hurt them. Moses isn't collecting taxes, right? And the donkeys are the workhorses. Those are the valuable animals. Just another lamb out of your you know, herd isn't necessarily a massive sacrifice that's being asked for from, from the priests. But even just Moses being angry with them and saying, Lord, don't respect their offering. Because like, he's asked them to bring these censers And to put fire on them, that fire, remember, represents kind of a burning kind of piece. And the smoke that comes up is this incense. We'll get to that. Moses, I think, is sometimes when accused of a bald-faced lie, a little bit of anger being expressed is not bad. It's totally in control. And Moses is saying this out out loud to the Lord. He's sharing it. God's big enough to take that kind of thing. God did have the power to just kill them. And Moses didn't pray for that, though he knows that that is what God can do. He just says, I don't want you to accept their offering, Lord. Let them feel a little distance from you so that they can know that the power of God is is not represented in what they say. I think this is because Moses gave himself to God completely. He's given his whole life to God and served God with his whole life. And therefore, Moses doesn't really care as much about his reputation as he does about God's relationship with these people. And I think that's a place that mature believers really get to. Like, you just don't care about your reputation anymore. It doesn't matter what people think. And in our flesh, it's worst, I think, in middle school. You start becoming aware that there's other humans out there, not just your Legos. And and when that happens, you worry about peer pressure. Oh, what does so-and-so think of me? And what do they think about me? And you go through all middle school and high school with this intense caring about what other people think about you. And then you get to college, and you realize you're going to just wear your basketball shorts to class and you stop caring as much. And then you get to be in the adult workforce and that gets even just naturally, progressively, we grow up and we stop caring about that as much. In the faith, I think that's a progression God wants us to get to where the only reputation we care about is our reputation with God. Everybody else doesn't matter. Even to some degree, your spouse, I'll look good before God before I look good to my wife or your husband, depending on your gender. And it's one of those things where I think that's the place where you want to be. And I think that's where Moses is at. And he's basically saying, Lord, don't respect their offering. I haven't, you know, I have a clear conscience. I haven't taken anything from them. I'm not hurting them. I'm actually trying to help them. So they need to feel it on this one, Lord, and they need to change it. And he's not worried about his reputation with them. He doesn't pray for his reputation. It's like, look, my life is yours, Lord. If they don't respect me, that's fine. But let's help them figure out their relationship with you. He names his service to God, and he gives his integrity right over to God in that prayer. I think God might be teaching Moses when to be actually angry and when to not be. And I think this is, again, a super mature topic in the faith. We've been through a long journey with Exodus and Numbers. And this is a point where we're having these conversations of, okay, when do we show a little bit of anger? when do we show grace and how do we do that? And this is a thing where we start to see it and we're going to try to kind of get our handle on it. Righteous anger is always a response to lies and mistruths. And that's the point where a little bit of anger from God's people, and it's a humble anger and it's a it's an anger where he's put himself on the ground in service. It's, a, it's an anger where he's praying to the Lord about it and he's handing that anger over to God. But it's a very complex topic. It's not something you talk about with new believers because it's just There's so many things you got to figure out before you come to these kinds of conversations. When do you get angry? When do you not do it? And God's trying to show that. So Moses in his anger actually intercedes for the people he loves. And that's the proper righteous outtaking of anger is you get mad about something and then you act by going to the Lord in prayer. And that's how you deal with anger. And you let that anger be something that God can use and here he intercedes for those that are hating God and defying his the, his assigned shepherds. And the shepherds are often gentle with the lost sheep. Boy, this goes just to what we were talking about, Kim. But they're defenders against the wolves. So I'm gentle when I'm dealing with somebody who's humbly trying to get closer to the Lord. I'm tender. I'm caring. I'm very Jesus-like. Jesus won. Jesus first coming. And when it comes to the wolves that come into the church... There is a a pushback from the shepherds. You get that cane and you whack them, and you get them out of your flock, because they're they're gonna fill your flock with this kind of dissension and hate, and they're not gonna serve God. They're gonna serve themselves. The hunger takes over, and that wolf hunger that's in the flock. This is where Moses takes his cane and he baps them a little bit. And the way he baps them is he prays to the Lord. Lord, do this. Now, I urge you, brethren, Romans 16:17. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. They're liars. For those who are, who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. They'll gather a group of 250, you know, and they've deceived these people and led them astray. Shepherds are gentle with the sheep, but they can be aggressive with the wolves. And there's a difference there. Um, This is a tough topic. I'm interested, I would love to hear your dad's thoughts on like how we do this because, and just get like seven pastors in a room and say, where's that line? But it's not a line I have to figure out because I'm not a pastor. And it's not a line that a lot of us have to figure out because we're just not at this position in, in the kingdom and we don't do this, but we need to respect that our pastors are in this position. And sometimes when you got people where they've prayed about it, they've gone to the Lord about it, they've worked with these people, they've tried to help them. These people have seen examples like Miriam and Aaron, right? And they're still in this position. Sometimes they gotta something's gotta happen. So something's gonna happen. Verse 16. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow, notice with the word tomorrow, Moses' anger is not reactive. It's not the kind of anger that we see like people punching each other on the street. That's not the kind of anger we're dealing with. This is something where it's like tomorrow, this is what's going to happen. So this is totally in control. It's not an emotive anger. It's more of a spiritual kind of sense. You and all your company will be present before the Lord. You and they, as well as Aaron, like Aaron's going to line up too. We'll be part of this. Let each take his censer and put incense in it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censors, both you and Aaron, each with a sensor. This is the perfect test. And it's not something that we can't do today, right? And it's something that I, well, he's going to invite 250 versus Aaron. That's really good odds for Aaron because Aaron's got God on his side and Moses knows that before they're going into it. it really doesn't matter how many people are on the other side. So I wonder if Elijah in 1 Kings 18 would have had these texts to read as a prophet. Like He would have been reading this stuff. And when he had the temple, the priests of Baal, how many were there? Uh, yeah, it's more than 250. Yeah, and I'm sure Elijah studied this just like we are tonight. And he's like, 250 and I got 400? It doesn't matter how many people are there. If it's God or not God, and I got God on my side, I could have thousands of people with censors. It just doesn't matter. And Elijah, who I love starts like mocking them in the middle of it like well maybe your god's not on his throne today maybe he took a break he took a nap he's taking a break how long are you going to falter between two opinions if the lord is god follow him but if baal is god follow him make up your mind take a choice and elijah does that but i know that elijah would have studied this chapter and it's where he would have known the result and the outcome of that kind of challenge way ahead of time Bible also says, don't test the Lord your God, so I wouldn't just run around challenging people like this. Um, But it is something where a pastor can often say, I tell you what, you go do your Bible study, I'll keep doing my Bible study, and the Lord can bless who he's going to bless. It's just that easy. And that happens, and I I know that um, one of my brothers has done that with people multiple times, and often those other Bible studies just shrivel up and die. Because really, the Lord isn't anointing that and it's not doing it. So a sensor is the Hebrew word makta. It's a fire holder or a pan that holds live coals. It's a vessel. If you put too many coals on that sensor, it'll burn your hands because it's made of metal. So oftentimes there might be even little handles on the side of it. Um, If you don't put too many in, the fire will go out. So there's an art form to sensors. You have to do it right. Uh, especially in the ancient world, and the wind's blowing because they're outside. It's a vessel to hold something, and in the tabernacle, the censers kept the burning fire of God alive. And if you remember, in the tabernacle it was an ever, fire, ever, ever burning fire that came right from the altar. So God's righteous anger would be ever burning. And what would you put on it? You'd put on an incense, and that smoke would rise up as an image of prayer. So he's basically saying, you take your prayers to the Lord, and I'll take. And Aaron and I will take our prayers to the Lord, and we'll see whose prayer he answers. It's the same thing Elijah does, right? So they take this, and then they, they carry their fire before the Lord. Remember in Leviticus 10, it's not good to bring strange fire before the Lord. God reacts poorly to that. So if the fire you're bringing to the Lord isn't sincere, if it doesn't resonate with what God wants... This puts them in a really dangerous position. And I think they would have known this too because they were all there when Nadab and Abihu got blasted by bringing strange fire before the Lord. So you bring your fire, I'll bring mine. They're gonna act like priests. Notice that that's the test here too. Moses is telling them to bring fire before the tabernacle. This is what the Aaronic priests did. This is what Aaron and his kids were supposed to do. So the Kohathites bringing this fire to the Lord was outside of their God-ordained role. But Moses promotes him and says, fine, you can have the job of the priest. You can have the priesthood. It's a great test. You do the priesthood, and then it's not about me making the decision of who's priest. It really is what God said should happen here. So that's the test. This is similar to what we've already seen. You ask for something, okay, you can have it, and we'll see what happens with that. It's like when they wanted quail, and they got their quail, and then a bunch of them died. Or it's like, you want to be in the wilderness instead of the Holy Land? Fine, you can be in the wilderness and die there. God often gives sinners exactly what they want, and they die in that. That's tragic, right? But that's what he does. Revelation 22:1. 1, he was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He was righteous, let him be righteous still. He was holy, let him be holy still. If this is what's in your heart, go there. You have free will. But You will become what your heart is. And that which proceeds from the mouth represents what's in the heart. You do your thing, I'll do mine. Let's see where the fruit is. That's the challenge. Verse 18, so every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with, Aaron, with Moses and Aaron, and Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All the congregation here is not all the children of Israel. It's much more in context. It's those 250 people that are just standing by, not saying anything. So they've gathered all their, their, their cohort Remember, incense here is that image of prayer. That's what they're doing in front of the tabernacle. We know it's an image of prayer, if you want in your notes, from, from Psalm 141 and various other places. Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And we see right there in, in the Psalms where they connect the prayer and the incense. That was a clear image that the Jewish people had. Uh, that's Psalm 141. Revelation 8.3 is another one of those clear connections in the New Testament. And an angel came and stood before the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The incense is connected with prayer everywhere in the Bible. Our lives, when we live them as a holy sacrifice to God, are an aroma to God that he smells, and it's sweet. When we give our life to service to God, that's like giving an offering. Because we're giving what we have full control over to God. Ephesians 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And that is a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Are the sons of Korah giving their life to God right now? Are they trying to promote themselves? And that's just a gut check. And there's no way to know. Because sometimes people step up for ministry. And it really is out of the right heart. So how as a pastor do you know when somebody wants to step up for ministry? How do you possibly know if it's with the right heart or not? And part of it is giving them opportunity. Like put a sensor in your hand, walk up, and see if the Lord blesses what you're doing or not. So Moses is, I think Moses thinks he knows what their heart is because he's angry. But he still, in total self-control, gives them an opportunity to step up to the temple. He gives them what they want. So here you go. Let's not miss that the test of the hearts and the prayers then is handed over to God. It's not a judgment that Moses makes, but that's the accusation they're making against Moses, is that he takes all this on himself, but he actually does the opposite and hands it over to the Lord. This is really just total high-end leadership that I think, at least for me, I'm not capable of this. I mean, this is really impressive stuff. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. I like that that's just a standalone idea. There's a pause, like the glory of the Lord just shows up, but we don't see what it does. It hasn't made a visible decision yet. So it's again, that pause moment, like like when the Lord took off from Aaron and Miriam, and and they're just standing there, and there'd have to be this awkward pause, like what's going to happen next? So the glory of the Lord shows up, God's there, and then I imagine that period is this long, awkward pause where in each person's heart, they know exactly how this is going to go down. Mm -hmm. Because in the presence of God, all those lies get stripped away. All that truth starts beaming in. And it's, in a sense, everyone in the presence of God is going to feel the power of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Okay, there's your answer right there. Like the Lord doesn't, he goes right to the two people and he talks to them and he's ignoring these other people. And I would hate that. I'd hate to be in that crowd and realize, oh, crud. We're on the wrong side of this dialogue. And I would be scooching over to kind of go stand behind Moses and Aaron. But they just stay silent. God actually speaks to and blesses his chosen servants. And that's really what's being contested right here. Who does God talk to? And God answers that question by talking to Moses and Aaron. And so they're not taking it upon themselves. God's given it to them because he speaks to them. And he says, verse 21, separate yourselves from amongst the congregation that I might consume them in a moment. Pause. Like, and then Moses and Aaron start scooching themselves away and you think, ah, here comes a, I mean, what's going to happen now? God also doesn't act in instant anger. He lets them think about it. Like, this is good parenting, Right? The spanking's coming in a moment. Just a moment it's coming. And I think that's one of those things that we can't forget. God is giving those moments because these are opportunities to repent. Remember when Aaron repented? He just was on the ground and Moses, I'm so sorry. I didn't know this was where Miriam was headed. I don't want to be any part of this. That moment, I'll consume them in a moment, that's an essential moment theologically where these people have a chance to repent they can soften their heart right now. They could even still have a hard heart, but recognize the power of God and just fall on their face because Moses has already modeled what that looks like to them. Instant repentance, right? And so they don't. God's answer for his people uh, often is to separate ourselves. And I thought that was a really huge idea here. Sometimes in our effort to love the world, we engage with the world and let that sin come into our life in this instance, and it's not always the case because Jesus ate with sinners, right? But in this particular case, God's answer is separate yourselves from those people. Get away. They're toxic people. Study how to do this and know it and be holy and be set apart and be consecrated for God, right? And that idea of being consecrated or being separated from the world is an important idea and it's tough, because sometimes there's Christ in culture, there's Christ with culture, there's Christ against culture, there's all different viewpoints on how to do this, and a mature Christian knows how to use all of them. At different moments with different people and different times, you take on a different position because your life is not your own, you're serving a king. And when the king says, separate yourself, I would back away because something's about to happen and you don't want to be anywhere near it. Separate yourselves from these people. That idea of consecration we've seen consistently from God. and I'm just going to list a few off so that people that are on the podcast can hit pause and get these. But Exodus 22:31, Leviticus 6:18, Leviticus 11:44, Leviticus 19:2. Leviticus 27, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy because I'm holy. That's what I want from you. He just reminded them, even in Numbers 15, verse 40, like we just saw this in the last chapter, be holy. He says to consecrate the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy, Exodus 28. He says, keep your houses holy and purify them from the garbage of this world, Leviticus 27, 14. He says, keep your days holy, like wake up in the morning and be holy all day. Numbers 6, verse 8. We don't do that out of hate for the world, but we do it out of obedience to God. We're going to be holy and then love the world. But we don't love the world by being like them or by standing with them on some things. Sometimes we just stand apart. It's not because we reject people, it's because we accept God's law. And that's hard for the Korothites to see right now, right? And it's hard for the world to see that from us too. And we need to know that when people say Christians are hateful, rejecting people, that's a sad place where we're not in relationship with them and they don't know that we love them. It's easy to say that about people you don't talk to, right? Like they're not speaking to Moses, so it's awful hard to see Moses' love for them. And if we don't engage with the world, they're never gonna see our love for them. All they're gonna see is that we are stepping away from them because we're trying to be holy out of love for our God, but they're not gonna see that that doesn't mean we don't love them. This is a complex, mature topic. And it's for Christians that are really living out their faith. Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of this holiness. And I want to just make that point because I don't want people to say um, that we somehow on our own strength get holy. Right? That's not what's going on here. God commands us to be holy. And then through Jesus, we get the tool to do it. 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness. It's not our job to be connected or yoked with people. It's our job to love people. And they're very, they're slightly different. I mean, this is a really complex topic to get into and talk about because it can easily be kind of, you can take one sentence out of context and really misunderstand this. So it is a different thing to be yoked with people than it is to love them. In this case, God says to Moses and Aaron, you need to separate yourself from these people. Get them away. So they fall to their own pride, their own greed, their own hunger, their own lawlessness, and they get hard-hearted because none of them repent in this moment that I've made last a little longer so that we can sit in this moment with them just a little bit. Move a step or two away. One last kind of reference that captures this idea too Titus, when Paul's writing to Titus about the pastorship, in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. That's a really interesting topic, because anytime somebody gets kicked out of a church, it's really easy to look at that pastor and say, well, they're taking way too much authority on themselves. Who are they to say people can't come to church? And it's like, well, You've admonished them once, Mm -hmm. twice. That looks like what Peter says. It looks like what Matthew says. They're following the rules. They're not being reactive. They're not making an angry, emotional decision. But they are saying, I'm not going to have a divisive person coming in here and twisting people every time they get a chance. We can't do that because we just want to love the Lord together. If you want to be part of that, you're welcome. And we, we saw in the last chapter, we welcome everyone. We let people come in. All the Gentiles could come in and be part of it. But there's a difference between what goes on in the heart and if you're a Gentile or an Israelite, that stuff doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is the heart. And there are people that want to serve the Lord and there's people that want to be divisive. So we see that as a consistent biblical theme, but it's a really difficult topic to talk about because our world and especially our culture says, well, you never say no to people. And in this case, the Bible says, You reject these kinds of people. You just say, no, you're not going to do that. Or in this case, you watch God's people (laughs) scooting away from you. There's that moment. Moses and Aaron, again, respond beyond human nature. This is supernatural Christ-like behavior. They fall on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with the whole congregation? They're praying for their enemies. That's way beyond what most of us are even capable of. I would be like this. God says, why don't you step away? I'm going to handle these people. And I'd be like, okay. (laughs) And I'd be getting out my camera. I'd be getting ready to make the YouTube clip. I would want to, I'd be like, all right, praise the Lord, because my anger is being satisfied. And look at how Moses and Aaron behave, man. And Aaron's with them on this. Just two chapters ago, Aaron was one of these people. But now Aaron is totally with Moses in this unified, like, love that they have for people, and they're praying for their enemies. Man. Then you wonder, is this whole situation here, has God allowed this whole situation just so that we can see what sacrificial love looks like? So we can get an image of self-sacrificing love way back in the Old Testament so that when Christ does it, we recognize that that's what God is, that God's with that guy. And that's what they do. How can one man's sin do all of this? Interesting phrase to use. Was it one man that came to him? It was four. How can one man's sin cause all this? Is he talking about Adam? One man sinned in the whole congregation? It's interesting when you see things like this. If you're faithless, you say, Well, that's a mistake in the Bible. Here we have, and this is one of the mistakes in the Bible, if you look at the list that you see on the internet. This is a mistake in the Bible. This is not a mistake in the Bible. First of all, it's not a rhetorical mistake or a numerical mistake, because it easily could just be the principle of, should one man affect the whole congregation? And we know that God has held all of humanity guilty for Adam's sin, so we know this one man situation. We know through all of the book of Leviticus that one sacrifice can account for a whole household of people. We just keep seeing this principle in the Bible that one person can intercede for the entire planet if that person's righteous and eternal, the sacrifice is righteous and eternal. So the answer to that question, of course, is one that we see. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation saying, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Ibarim, which means what happened to on or On, or whatever, however you say, O-N he must have repented, right? He's not part of the equation anymore. And I think that's really interesting. Okay, so Owen's just not involved anymore, which means in that moment, he's sliding over to Moses and Aaron's side. And God gives them this moment where he says, okay, anybody who wants to not be part of this has a chance to repent and get away from it. And this is a principle that goes right to our Christianity. Everyone on the planet has a chance to repent. And they say, well, what what happened if I never heard about Jesus? But you're hearing about Jesus right now. You have an opportunity right now to repent. But what if you weren't here? And that, well, that's not the reality. The reality is I'm telling you right now that you have a chance to follow the Lord. Why wouldn't you do it? So again, we see the importance of prayer. God responds to prayer. I still think prayer is a miracle. That God would hear our prayers and respond to it in any way, shape, or form, I would think would be ridiculous. If an ant prayed to me, I wouldn't care. But the God of the universe actually listens to us and cares what we think. And that's absolutely miraculous. And I don't think we should just read through that. We got to just stop and absorb that a little bit. God cares what Moses and Aaron think. How much more than does he care about what you think and what you pray for? God knows their hearts are likely to be deceived, uh, but he's going to deal with these leaders and there's going to be a consequence here. So God is not going to be mocked. And he's going to end this, but he gives everybody a chance to repent. And I love that Owen's not one of them because I think I was an enemy of God at one point, And God loved me even when I was an enemy. God's not killing these people because he hates them. He's killing these people because they refuse to repent and he's got to get them out of Israel because he wants to create a holy people that don't know what holy people look like yet. We know what they look like because we have the Bible. We can read it. So we don't see these things happening. But at this point in history, he had to do it. So then Moses rose which means he was on the ground the whole time, right? I mean, that's an interesting position to have this whole conversation. But he rose and he went to Dathan and Ibiram and the leaders of Israel followed him. So now look at these people are coming behind Moses. This is probably the leaders that were identified back in Numbers 10. So the God-picked leaders, now Moses has got people with him. And in the past, we've seen Moses kind of stand alone. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Leave that stuff alone. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan and Ibiram, and Dathan and Ibiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives. Oh, and this is the hard part, their sons and their little children. Notice with Moses rising and going, I'll come back to the kids. Moses rose and went. Notice that they refused to come to Moses, but Moses was not above going to them. There's no pride on Moses's part. Can you imagine most humans would be like, you're not going to come to me, then I'm not going to come to you. Moses doesn't do that. He's actually a mature guy. Fine. I'll come to you. And that is actually worse for them because at this point, now they're in real trouble. The elders of Israel followed him. He's got people with him now. Man, Moses is, this is, the nation is maturing, not just Moses, right? And the nation, the God appointed leaders are showing themselves to be God appointed leaders that are supporting Moses. And their little children here is the tough part for me. It is so horrible to see grown men and women sin in a way that hurts their children, but it's a reality and the sin of the fathers can become the curse of the sons and daughters and the sins of the mothers can become entirely damaging to their kids and we see this all over the place and the world is rife with it men and women that don't stay faithful to their commitments without regard to the little kids that are involved in it and in this case the little kids are going to suffer because they're part of the household that that man and the the the, the parents should have been shepherds to their household. But instead, they're sending their whole family to the slaughter. And it's it's sad. And, and to, the fact that Moses adds this in here is not to promote himself. This would have been tragic for Moses too, right? So he says, depart now. This is a message of urgency. The word now in there means exactly what it means in the English. Depart this second in verse 26. Depart now from the tents. Don't grab your stuff. Don't do it. Get away. Get away instantly. And you think of this idea, and I was talking with Steph about this this week. That really is a consistent message in the Bible. Repentance. When you have a chance to repent, you do it now. You do it instantly. And it's the thing that John the Baptist preached out in the wilderness, right? He said, "Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't wait on this." It's the first words that Jesus said in his ministry. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here right? So don't wait on this stuff in the face of sin in our lives. Man, I hope nobody's struggling with this, but if if you're wrestling with sin, because we all do our whole lives, and it's something that's dominating in a way that God's not dominating your life and the sins dominating your life, repent now. Don't wait a second on it, because you may not have a chance to repent later. So truly these times of ignorance got overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. So God can overlook things, but there is also a time to do it and to repent. And when God speaks into your heart, when we're reading his word, it's time to repent this moment. And don't turn back to it, right? Lot's family turned back. But don't don't think of what's back in the stupid tense. Think about what God has in front of you. And the glory that he has for the plan for your life if you repent now. And the way he honors that. So what's tough about that message, and that's a difficult message, is that we just saw in Decision Magazine, February 2019, they did a survey. This is before COVID. 90% of pastors recognize that the Bible speaks on repentance. Fewer than 10% of those same pastors are actually teaching about repentance in their sermons on Sunday mornings. This is the pastors admitting this to a polling agency. Yeah, I recognize there should be repentance. No, I don't talk about it in my church. That's crazy talk. Like that's a huge part. Yes, there's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love that Jesus has for you. But if I can have all the love and never repent of my sins, what a convenient religion that would be. It's extremely popular. And it was just because I'm looking this up going, okay, what's going on here? And then you see those kinds of numbers in a simple Barna poll. Like, do you teach on repentance or don't you? Um, We don't like to hear that judgment is real. And in the next few verses, we're going to see that it's real. And it's a biblical idea. God has patience. He puts moments. He offers chances to repent. But there is a point where there's a thing called judgment. And that's the Christian faith. And it is in the Bible. So it's one of those things that I promised you we'd read through and we'd get to what it says and we'd take it for what it's at. So here we are, three books into the Bible, 16 chapters deep. Hundreds of ideas are things we've gone through in Bible study over the last two years. God waits in the Bible for maturity to develop before he gets to these complex ideas. And I think that's one of the tough things when people just handpick verses out of the Bible is that there's a progression that has built to this. There is a maturity that has built up to this. And there is this entire book of Leviticus that teaches us how to worship God before this is even a conversation, which should tell us something about evangelism. The love of Christ is what we preach to people, right? It's when their conscience starts dealing, well, what about this this thing I'm doing in my life that I know is kind of wrong that I shouldn't be doing? And you're like, well, yeah, let's talk about that. Why are you still doing it? And if you know that it's wrong, stop. And that's what Jesus does with the woman when they're trying, getting ready to stone her because she was guilty of sin. And Jesus didn't say, oh, don't worry about it, keep sinning. He just says, it looks like there's nobody here to judge you today, but repent and sin no more. Stop doing it. And God wants to give people the opportunity to stop. So he allows them that time to do it. And basically, that's the message of Jesus Christ. You know, today, God loves you. There's nobody here to accuse you. I'm not your accuser today. But stop sinning and stop doing it. And that is the gospel message. It goes hand in hand. Love goes with us loving God by trying to stop sinning with everything we got, to turn and repent. So we've had all these chapters to get maturity and repentance to get a very complex message about judgment. And it's something where you could leave Bible study tonight and just say, well, God's going to judge people and he's going to kill all the sinners. But that I hope you have gotten more nuance and you know that that is not there is a complexity to this judgment thing. And before God gets to judgment, he gives people every opportunity. And he knows their hearts and he knows they're hardened in their heart. And then he's going to deal with the hardened heart. But I pray to God that everybody we know in our families and in our friends' networks, we don't know their hearts. And we don't know if they're so hard that they can't turn anymore. And we can only pray and hope for them like Moses and Aaron have done. We can only pray and hope that that hard heart could be softened and that they could turn back to a loving God. And that's what we pray for. Verse 28, Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. Moses is wise in doing this. He's asking them to do things, not just what they say, but to do it if these men die naturally like all men, or if they're visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all of the things that belong to them, and they will go down alive into the pit, then you'll understand that these men have rejected the Lord. This is a new thing. It says, where did Moses come up with this? Well, here's what's going to happen. The earth is going to open up. It's going to swallow all the people. And you think, I don't, Moses just saying that out of nowhere? Or is God telling him what's going to happen? Behold, I'm doing a new thing, Isaiah 43:19. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make my way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened up in its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the men with Korah and all their goods So they and all of those with them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. And then all of Israel who were around fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us also. They still don't get it. All of Israel's running away. And it was pretty clear that this was a targeted earth opening swallowing activity and they weren't swallowed, but they run away instead of running to God. I've never seen this moment captured in a Hollywood movie. This isn't one of those stories in the Bible that people get too excited about. Um, But these folks are not going to get to the promised land and they're not going to die in the wilderness. They're going to be done right now because the hearts are hardened. Um, And they brought censors with strange fire before the Lord, so they went and did something they shouldn't have done. So the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. This is the point I made before. Notice that those 250 silent people are getting published too. When you see a lie being told and you don't say anything, you're held accountable for your silence. And that's a really challenging thing for most believers. We can't abide when people are being attacked and they're being lied about we are supposed to be a light in that situation. And shining light on it means telling the truth. And these 250 people, they're guilty. And they get consumed right along with the other folks that did do the speaking. In the Hebrew Bible, 35 is the end of the chapter. That's it. It starts a new chapter in the next verse. And it it, it ends in judgment in the Hebrew Bible. What's interesting as you move forward in history and you see the Christian Bible, they combine this chapter with the next chapter. And the judgment isn't the end of the story anymore. And in Christ, that's the same thing. That message of judgment that the Jews had to live with is not a message of total judgment. There's a redemption piece that comes with the Christian version. And people can also say, well, that's, see, the Bible has changed over time and that sort of thing, but it's actually chapter titles were not necessarily part of the original. So the Hebrews added their chapters and the Christians added their chapters and they did it with you know different purposes. But the chapter titles are not the actual script and we should know that, so I'll move on and finish up the chapter. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "'Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, "'to pick up the censers out of the fire, "'for they are holy and scatter some, scatter the fire some distance away.'" This is an unholy fire that's being introduced Uh, We have the holy fire that burns eternally in the temple, but this fire is not going to burn eternally. It's just going to get thrown away. And that's representative of the heart of God in the temple fire and the heart of these sinful people that that do perish and get extinguished. Uh, The censors of these men who sinned against their souls, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar. Oh, what an image they presented them before the Lord, because they presented them before the Lord. So they did present these censers before the Lord. Therefore, they're holy. God redeems even what the sinful people do in order to communicate to the righteous people. And they're going to make a symbol that every time they come up to the altar, that altar is going to be covered in this metal that will remind them of this story. This is what happens to, to hard-hearted people. So Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censers, which were those who were burned up and presented them, and presented, and they were hammered out as a covering on the altar to be a memorial to the children of Israel, that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to said to him through Moses. Picture this idea. The ashes are swirling in the wind. There's dead people there's just this kind of like thing and all that's left above the ground in these ashes are these little sensors all over 250 of them. And Eliezer has to go through the ashes of these people to pick out what is holy. And God reclaims what is holy and what he has provided and what he has given even from this scene. And I can kind of see the dusty wind blowing and just the remains of everything on the ground. That idea or that phrase that says they sinned against their own souls goes back to that idea of God just gave them what they wanted, right? They didn't want to, they, they wanted their own thing. And I just, sometimes our hurt in our life is our own creation. Mm-hmm. And we've made our own version of hell because we've sinned against, not against God, but we've sinned against ourselves. And we sin against ourselves when we say we're not worthy, when we say we're not loved, when we say we're not cared about, because those are lies. And we can say they come from Satan, but it also says in the Bible that sometimes we sin against ourselves. We create our own hell. And that's what these people did. They made their own situation here. They were gonna wander in the, they're gonna live to a ripe old age and die in the wilderness with their people and with their kids and their families, those little kids that got harmed in this situation. But instead of just being satisfied with that, they had to make their own disaster. And that's exactly what happened here. The enemy just sits back and laughs when the people of God accuse themselves. And we don't even need Satan to do that for us. We can just do it all by ourselves. Every hurt that we have in our life, we can just remember it all on our own and beat ourselves up with it over and over and over again. We can go to bed at night and just think about the bad things in our life and we can create our own situation that is not the responsibility of Satan and it's totally tragic and in this case i see that phrase and i think yeah that's a biblical truth we can sin against our own souls and what a tragedy no recorded word from the 250 people at all throughout the whole chapter these are silent people that did nothing said nothing and they are nothing and they're eliminated from the history of the world and they were men of renown but we don't even know their names because in god's kingdom they don't they're, they're not even relevant and i don't ever want that to be me on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying, you've killed all the people of the Lord. And you're like, come on. It just keeps going. And you know what? There's a lesson in that. Yeah, it keeps going. It's just going to be a constant cycle with God's people and people that don't serve the Lord. And that's just going to be how it is. So Moses gives them all a chance. They start complaining. Now it happened, verse 42, when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly a cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the congregation that I can consume them in a moment. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to just wipe them all out. And they fall on their faces and they pray for him again. You got this image, too. Some people would say this is an, 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 an image of end days, that there's an intercession with Moses and Aaron, and some people are consumed. But then on a second coming of these kind of complainers, the world rises up against God, that God's going to come back suddenly like a thief in the night, and we have a picture of that here. That in this time, God's going to deal with the whole nation, all of them. In, and when God Christ returns, he's going to deal with the whole planet. And you have this kind of image of that kind of, okay, now I'm back. I get the image of God with a drawn archery bow, and all the power of God is right there, but he's not going to release the finger, so it's still God's power projecting that arrow, but he's going to wait for the prayer of his people before he acts. There's certain things that God's holding off on before he does this judgment. So... God says, okay, enough of the complaining. He feels the same way we do. We've been reading about complaining too darn long in this book. And God's like, okay, I'm just going to deal with it. We're going to be done with complaining. And we're going to do what God's talked about back two chapters ago. We're going to start over with you, Moses, and we won't have the rest of the nation. Only now it's Moses and Aaron. So Moses, through two chapters ago, got a new partner in god Godliness. And in this case, of course, they both fall on their faces together. It's not just Moses interceding, it's Aaron. And we can start to see this pattern of when things go wrong, God's people pray. That's what we do. We pray. God's people accept their place as intercessors in prayer. It says, get away from the congregation that I might consume them. <laughs> it says I might, that, I, that I may consume them in a moment. God hasn't made his decision yet. So it's not that God's made a promise he doesn't keep here. He just says that, that I may consume them. So Moses said to Aaron, verse 46, take a censer and put it on the fire in the altar, put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation, quickly, and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. What? So this time a plague's going to happen. And I'm thinking, oh, how appropriate. A couple things. First, apparently God can make a plague happen. And sometimes, and I'm not saying all the time, But sometimes a plague is God talking to a nation or a people. And we see that example right here in that this is God's judgment on the people when he sends out plague. I'm not saying that's necessarily what's going on with COVID. I'm just not there and I have not heard God talk to me directly. But I am saying the Bible says God can control plagues. And God can make plagues happen. And we're supposed to turn to God when that happens. And that's actually really exciting for the people of God is that we see worship services under bridges in California. We see churches that are meeting in secret all of a sudden because they love the Lord. We see fireworks and noises happening outside the building when they're meeting in, in churches that are trying to meet together and people are protesting them outside the doors. People of God rise in times of trouble and sometimes God can purify his people and bring them together. And that can be very exciting. It's like the men of Gibeon that sent sent to Joshua the camp of Gilgal. Um, And and you see that idea where God can purify and get his people together in these times of crisis. Quickly is the word Mahara. It's the first use in the Bible that we see that word quickly in that form. And I always like first uses because that becomes a principle then for the rest of the Bible. When God's people are going to interact or or act or when we're supposed to be carrying the gospel out, because that's what Jesus said to us, you're supposed to take the good news to all people. When we see in the Bible that people are doing it right, it comes with this idea of haste and urgency. And the haste and urgency empowers our evangelism. Aaron is going to take that sensor of prayer and he's going to symbolically run around the nation and anywhere he goes, the plague falls back. And God's basically empowering Aaron to fight plague all by himself through prayer. This is really cool. And it happens. And suddenly he does it. Then Aaron took, took it as Moses commanded. And look at how Aaron responds. And he ran into the midst of the assembly. He didn't walk. He didn't stroll. He didn't keep his cool. He moved fast because in the prior verse it said, take it quickly and do it. And Aaron obeys in the urgency that God commands. So if it's urgent for us to share the gospel with other people, not just with our lives, but with our joy and our love, we should be doing that quickly and urgently and never miss a conversation where God's got an opening to do that. And man, if we have that urgency, that is something that God can use and he does it. So Aaron runs with a sensor waving around with smoke coming out and he's running around the people. And this is a big camp. So he's literally running past tents with this censor, praying for the people as he does it. And he runs into the midst of the assembly and already the plague had begun among the people. Aaron's a changed man. We see a, this is a different Aaron at this point, right? And we see that amazing thing. So he's running to do it and then he's seemingly doing it alone. So there's this beautiful image of Christ, the single person that stands between life and death. And this single person that's going to run into the assembly of the people and, and give this sacrifice of prayer of what he's doing. So all of this is a recorded event that happens from Moses' perspective. But for us, this is a wonderful symbol of Christ, that Aaron stands as our high priest and stands in that place. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people, and he does this. We have to be praying holy living people that stand together as a group and pray for others. So we do that. We're constant in our prayer. Again, I said before, this is a mature chapter for mature believers. This is stuff that addresses, I think, people that are in pastoral or ministerial roles. And their job is to pray for their flock and to do that, to have that sensor of prayer and to keep it burning and to do it urgently and quickly and without ceasing. So we get a few truths. Truth, when we live for God, there are going to be people that challenge us. It's just going to keep happening truth from this chapter. Another truth. When that happens, we fall on our face and pray and we do it right now. Truth. Another truth is our prayers reflect and act out the love that is God's will for people. This is not hatred from God. This is actually the love of God that he gives us the ability to do with him. And when we do that, we've seen that through the previous chapters that God's will for these people is the Promised Land. We know His will is a loving, graceful will. That's what He wants for them. But they keep creating their own mess. Here's a fourth truth. This is how Kingdom people stand: is that we fall to our knees. We do the opposite of what the world does. The world puffs themselves up and pushes forward, and we do the opposite. We fall on our knees and we pray to the Lord, and it's how we do business. And I just think that's such a beautiful idea. So these sacrifices are there. Verse 48, and he stood between the living and the dead. So the plague was stopped. It is a plague when people choose themselves over a holy living God that created them. It's a plague. And we live in a country where most people are in that boat. And that I can't. My parents couldn't even say that. My grandparents definitely didn't say that. They lived in a country where most people respected the Lord God Almighty. We don't anymore. We're a minority in this country. But he stands between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. That's amazing that God works that way. My question is, can we do more of this? Can we do more of this kind of praying? When we know people that have anxiety, fear, stress, hate, anger, pride, addiction, depression, can we be standing in the gap for them and praying for them consistently, totally, Like, I think that takes a little organization. It takes a little order. It takes setting aside our emotional anger and letting a righteous anger drive us to prayer and love. And it takes people that are making lists and doing it. Not just hearing God's words, but doing God's words. Verse 49, now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. One way to read that sentence is 14,000 people died. Isn't that tragic? Another way to read that sentence is, over a million people survived. And Aaron's running around the camp like a lunatic, because he looks like a lunatic to the rest of them, is actually saving their lives. And when he stands in the gap for them, he's God's honoring that the high priest is busy doing that business. And I think, boy, for mature believers... You're looking at that and you're thinking, that's what I want to aspire to. I want to be urgently and quickly praying for people in every way that I can. And then read that sentence and and not dwell on the people that died. So this is perhaps, this is less than 1% of the people that are dying of the plague. The other people are learning a lesson. And death really isn't the end of things. God says we have eternal souls. So that's something where you get to just be with God a little quicker. Verse 50, so Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, for the plague had stopped. I would love for COVID to stop. And I'd love to see COVID stops because God's people united in prayer and it just ends and the whole world can see. Because in this instance, Aaron gives the glory to God and through his prayers and then the plague stops. And the way it's recorded in history is the plague stopped because of Aaron's prayer. Now, COVID could just stop at some point and God would not get the glory. It's like, oh, look at how humans created a vaccine. But wouldn't it be cool if God just stopped the virus cold in its tracks with no vaccine and just some lunatic running around with a sensor saying, you know, praise be to the Lord. And I don't know if that happened, but you think this is a really interesting moment in history where a million people recognize the plague stopped because of this man's prayer and intercession. And at the very least, we get a great image of Jesus Christ. The whole world has an opportunity to be saved because of the intercession of Jesus Christ. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? In the end, as God's people, we just return to the tabernacle. We go out into the world. We do our work. We pray for people, but we keep coming back to the tabernacle in verse 50. right? And we keep coming back to that place. There's a place for God's people after judgment happens. And judgment's going to happen... And we all have a home to go back to. And I love the idea that this chapter comes back. And I really think this is the idea of like when Christians put these two chapters together, they saw this as one idea. All this rebellion, all this stuff, all this turmoil in the world. But the very last sentence is that Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle, a meeting for the plague it stopped. There's hope. It doesn't end in judgment like the Hebrew Bible. It ends with hope. And that's the idea. We want as many people to be saved as we can. So when it's all said and done... We have a place to be, a family to go to, and a place to return to. Amen. Verse of hope. We have three fairly short chapters coming up next. So let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for a chance to do Bible study together as a family way over here in the Dells. And Lord, we just thank you for your word and help us to not be irreverent with your word, but to take it seriously. It's no small thing to know your will it's a hard thing sometimes to see how it gets carried out. It's a very hard thing to see that there are people that will harden their hearts against it. But Lord, help our, our hearts to be soft, help us to be humble, Help, help us to never think we know so much or so much better than other people that we're not willing to fall on our faces and pray for them and be willing to be put to the test, Lord, that we can put our prayer up against anybody else's prayer and that we do it with a clean conscience. Lord, help us to be holy not because of our own reputation. Help us to be holy not because we want to be respected or more uh, advanced in the church like the Kohathites, but help us to be holy simply because you're holy and we want to be like you. And help our relationship with you, Lord, to take precedence over any reputation we have with anybody else. Lord, I pray for each person in this room as we struggle with sin together to deal with their sin and repent instantly from it help them to not wait. I just pray that your Holy Spirit moves in us so that we can be a holy people consecrated and set apart for your work in your kingdom. That's what we're all about. Lord, I pray as we read your word that we understand your word with the power and the truth that's in it, that we don't fight against your will and your word, but we soften our hearts and we turn towards your will and your word because we know you love us and you care about us and you want to lead us. Uh, with your spirit. So Lord, I just pray for that to happen. Bless the rest of our time in the Dells. Bless our time at uh, church in Madison tomorrow. I just pray that they're not too intimidated by a big group coming in the door. Um, And help us to just be blessed. And I pray for Pastor Jeff, that what he's teaching can just shoot right to our hearts uh, and our minds, Lord, that you can uh, move us towards you in each way, in each moment. So I pray you bless that time. Give us all safe travels and blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.